You are listening to Scotland's Ear to the Ground, the podcast that brings you interviews with Scotland's finest composers. Your hosts are Aileen Sweeney and Ben Eames. We are delighted to be joined with Jay Capital this evening. Jay is a Scottish composer and saxophonist who has written for various artists and ensembles, including the RSNO, the National Youth Orchestra of Scotland, BBC Philharmonic, Hebrides Ensemble, the Red Note Ensemble, and many, many, many more. Most recently, Jay was commissioned by the BBC to compose a new work for the 2020 proms premiered by the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra. Um, so, to kick things off, um, we'd love to chat about your most recent commission. You have achieved what many composers dream of, um, as this year your piece Circadian Refrains, 172 Days Till Dawn, was premiered at the BBC Proms. Can you tell us a bit more about this experience? Well, I mean, it was it was such a privilege to be involved in it, firstly. I mean, I'd, I'd be saying that anyway about being involved in the proms, you know. I've been watching it since I was a wee kid, you know, so actually to even get the, the phone call was just... I mean, that kind of blew my mind in the first instance because actually thinking back to it, I think at that point the proms was still kind of up in the air as to whether or not it was even going to be going ahead. So to get this phone call out the blue to say would you like to write as a piece? And by the way, it's going to be happening in about four weeks' time. Can you write as the music? I mean, I was, I was shocked and also really, really excited for it. I, I just couldn't believe it. Um, it, was, it was so special um, to just receive that phone call and to think about it. But it was a bit of pressure as well, because like I say, I only had about four weeks or so to actually get the piece to the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra for them to start preparing all the parts and dishing it out to the musicians. It was an odd experience actually even being in the, the concert as well because I, I don't know if many people would have been aware of this because it, even when you look at it on uh, the BBC iPlayer, you don't really get a sense of, of the audience or who was there. And obviously at that point, audiences were not allowed to be in. So I was the only person sitting <laughs> in the hall, <laughs> which was so... It, it was honestly one of the most bizarre... but. but but also, you know, profound experiences, because here we are, we've got the BBC Scottish Symphony Orchestra conducted by Alpes Cho, and, and obviously Stephen Hoff was involved as a pianist when he was playing the uh, Beethoven Piano Concerto. And to sit there, just even as an audience member, was so, so special. I mean, I'll, I'll never, ever forget that experience. And, and kind of just sort of like feeling the the awe of being in the space as well. And even, in fact, thinking back just to the, the first rehearsals that we had, because by that point, we'd already had quite a, a substantial period of time where, you know, we hadn't heard a live musician performing that hadn't been through, say, like me watching YouTube videos or like when it was um, London Symphony Orchestra uh, concerts that they posted online or the RSNO concerts that they were posting onto YouTube as well. And to hear the oboe play its tuning note for the orchestra. It's just like, I've never been happier to hear a, a, an individual instrument in my life. It was just incredible, it's brilliant. That does sound like a, a very special experience. I, I don't think many people can say they've had a, a private proms concert of their own music. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's insane. Um, I was really surprised to hear that it was a was it a four week deadline 
Yeah, pretty much because, um, I mean, I suppose it, it was maybe even like six weeks or something before the actual deadline, but I think I spent the first uh, week or two of that just panicking and sort of writing bits and chucking it in the bin and writing more bits and chucking it in the bin. Yeah, I mean, four weeks. I'm I'm sweating here just thinking about that. But <laughs> <laughs> Did you feel that it was quite organic then um, when you arrived at the 172 days as being the sort of concept for the structure of the piece? Did that kind of feel like a relief almost? It, it was in some sort of sense, but also it's something that I have been thinking about for quite a while, is that sort of um, the idea of cataloguing days in chords in some sort of way. Even even thinking something that you might do as a lifespan, and it's, it's something that I've, I've thought about that you, you, know, you might do when you're a very, very old composer is to do something like that over the, the course of your lifetime. But actually, when, when I began thinking about it in this context, it made a lot of sense to me because that was how it felt as far as I was concerned, uh, and from my own experience, you were literally taking it day by day, um, and, and and that was it. You know, there was, there was, for me anyway, there was nothing more than that. It's like you wake up, get through that day, and, and try and just sort of like plow on. And it, it became clear to me that by representing that in the 172 chords and 172 bars, so each of the bars also becomes an oral representation of the day that I maybe had at that point, but then also trying to track a sort of overarching journey um, that led us somewhere. So the other thing that I was thinking about with regards to that piece was the idea of dawn. For me, was then representative of the easing of lockdown, returning to some form of normality, but it's more of a kind of conceptualised dawn and maybe a dawn that's also kind of tongue-in-cheek because also at that point we didn't really have much hope for the future in that sense in terms of where in terms of where the lockdown was actually then leading us and so the dawn for me really was the performance in that sense that was my kind of metaphorical breaking of dawn but the actual dawn that's represented probably a sunrise or a musical sunrise that doesn't feel like a sunrise in in the sort of romantic maybe Wagnerian sort of like sense of it you know it's not this sort of like the big opening flourishing moment it's maybe something that that as you think back to the overarching structure, there is a kind of arc which might suggest a kind of sunrise and sunset on either side of it. But it's really to sort of like leave a question for the audience. Do we feel like we have actually reached a point where we've experienced that sunrise or in, in other words, the, the lockdown is over? And, and obviously because at that point lockdown wasn't over, I felt it necessary to kind of hammer that point home, which is why the, um, the beginning material sort of like rustling textural sort of sound then returns at the very end of the piece, which is to suggest also the cyclic nature of, of the days and, and the you know the sun setting and rising, etc. Um, but also to take us back to the point that we are in. So it's it's really interesting that you chose to almost structure the piece on the, the basis of these 172 chords, which is a very exact number. How did you approach working towards this very specific number within the concept and were you, were you ever tempted to sort of deviate away from it at any point or did you feel it was actually quite good to have that to latch on to during the writing process? I think it was it was good for me to have something to latch on to I think as well because at that point um, you know when I only had the four weeks I felt like I was kind of like flying by the seat of my pants a wee bit. <laughs> <laughs> So having something very formulaic and structural like that was incredibly useful. And actually, um, it did kind of keep me in my lane in, in terms of what it was that I was trying to achieve. But I suppose generally speaking, you know, when you when you ask about 
was ever tempted to sort of deviate away from that concept. Um, I tend actually just in my writing generally to stick to the concept anyway. So whatever it is that I'm writing about tends to come actually before any of the actual musical ideas and usually actually informs the musical ideas themselves. So a lot of my music is very, very conceptually driven. Uh, I found that the concept of the piece, the 172 days being represented by an individual chord, seemed to reflect a sort of a distortion of time. Um, I'm sure myself and many others felt during the lockdown period. It's interesting that you've picked up on that aspect of it as well, because what, one of my favourite composers is Harrison Burtwistle, who plays a lot with the sensation of time. I think most of his pieces, generally speaking, are, are never any shorter than about half an hour, especially his, his larger orchestral pieces. Um, and so he's he's got a, a huge scope to be able to focus in on time specifically, um, and to and to play around and stretch and and sort of like play around with the the sensation of the durations of time. And I suppose I was thinking about that, or at least it must have been in the back of my mind when I was composing it. And particularly when you start to then think about the cyclic nature of the material that I came up with, is that essentially it kept coming back to the same chord, which was to give a sense of the sort of like the repetitive nature of, of what lockdown was like, but but also to then play around with the actual durations in between those chords um, arriving again. Um, and that, that was it was fun to play around with that. But again, it's it's quite difficult to to balance that that sensation of time and to balance how I feel about that sensation versus how a, an audience member is going to feel about that sensation. So now would be a nice time to listen to some of your music. Uh, we're going to listen to Afterlife. Uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the piece, um, who's playing on the recording and how the project began? So Afterlife was a project that um, I did a couple of years ago uh, along with Lewis Banks, who was the uh, commissioner. He's also a saxophonist. Um, and, and the idea of the project was to create an hour-long piece of music, which was accompanied by uh, a film that was uh, made by Paul Wright, who's a Manchester-based director, which was all inspired by David Eagleman's book, Some uh, and the subtitle of that book is 40 Tales from the Afterlives. And so the idea was to focus in on a number of chapters whereby we would create short movements which would represent some of the chapters that we wanted to focus in on. And each chapter he's focusing in on a different aspect of what may or may not be in the afterlife. And so this movement in particular uh, is a movement called The Third Death. Uh, what David Eagleman is trying to put across in the storyline at least, is this sense of a huge waiting room where everyone goes when they die. And so in the chapter he describes the first death, which is the, the physical death, and then there's the spiritual death where you then go into the afterlife, and then the third death comes when your name is then spoken for the last time on earth. What I really like about David Eagleman's writing is that he's incredibly logical uh, about how he puts across those ideas. So he thinks the story through to its logical conclusion. So what would happen in that scenario? So you find yourself in that afterlife in this huge waiting room and you're surrounded by people from history because people from history are still being talked about. So you've got all these sort of like <laughs> forlorn figures like, you know, um, Diana or Gandhi or Elvis or whoever else, you know, sitting really frustrated in this waiting room for their names to be spoken for the last time before they can progress. And so in this movement, I was trying to, again, capture this idea. I mean, I suppose it's a bit reflective of um, circadian refrains in that sense, this kind of 
um, frustrating, moving but not moving, and slow sort of like celestial pastoral sort of um, feel to the to the music, whereby it, it sort of gets again, it gets caught up in itself before it can transcend. But this movement in particular um, became a really really personal uh, piece to me because I actually ended up putting my own name into the piece in a sort of um, musical motif. So it was, it, it was something just as simple as taking the, um, the vowels of my own name and then putting that into a musical format, which becomes the, the opening line uh, that the saxophone plays. And then it was really a sense of just developing that material and going through the narrative that David Eagleman is, is, is trying to portray in that sense.
I really love those um those harmonies at the end, um, in particular. That just arriving at that, and it's sort of, I don't know, it feels like suspended almost at the end there. It's cool. Really like it. <laughs> thank you, thank you. You know, just um, listening back to it there, it's actually been a, a wee while since I've listened to the whole thing. Um, and I should probably mention that uh, the, the piece is actually dedicated to my Aunt Valerie, who passed away prematurely from cancer. And all of it, it just sort of struck me again. And I, I, it's just how important that aspect is to that piece, although it's not in the, the programmatic element of it. But the the title of the third death becomes that bit more personal again to me because that that really was the the third death that I've experienced personally. So I think all of my emotions and grief, just everything that I was, because that that happened around that point that I was writing the piece. So I suppose it it became quite important. I think for me to try and process those emotions through the music in that sense. Yeah, and I, th- I think that personal aspect of the piece really comes across in your piano writing, um, especially those intimate moments towards the end with the really subdued, broken chords. Um, and just w- with regards to that that type of piano writing at the very end, one of my favourite pianists is uh, Bill Evans, mm-hmm. um, the jazz pianist, and I'll just love those sort of like really hushed, quiet harmonies. And just it's, it's not even the harmonies that, that's used in that way, but actually more the way of playing it you know it's just it's so light to the touch and it's it's just the, I think the, the, the types of sounds that he can get from the quieter end of the piano is just spectacular and I think you know especially when I'm working with pianists and, and I write that type of music I always bring his name up even for classical musicians they'll have, have, have listened to some of his stuff I'm sure um, and if they haven't then it, I suppose it's fun for me to try and describe what kind of sound I'm looking for from it you know that type of um, piano writing in particular at the end I've, I've always got Bill Evans sound in mind when I'm when I'm thinking or, or when I'm writing that music rather that's that's quite interesting that you mentioned Bill Evans because I think I actually think that probably comes across because he was sitting in my mind as well you know it's that you know and and you're completely right I think it's very understated like it is very rich harmony but it's so understated absolutely absolutely yeah and especially when um when it is such rich harmony in that way you know it's something that I love to explore because that really is my language you know especially that kind of like jazz uh, harmony a lot of really lovely um crunching clusters in there as well that um that reminds me very much of Bill Evans's harmonic writing in his own compositions but when we use that as cl- say quote unquote classical composers to try and not also romanticize them and to sentimentalize them either and I think that the style of playing uh, those particular harmonies becomes incredibly important which is why I like to try and reference the types of sound that that maybe a performer can bring to it especially when then you're talking to a classical musician who maybe doesn't play jazz or anything and just to give that kind of indication so that someone doesn't then play them as like really lush rolling chords which then becomes a bit too pastoral or sentimental or whatever you know although it is you know it's it's, I suppose it is a quite a um it's quite a sentimental nostalgic piece but not to stray into the territory of the mawkish or the kind of gaudy in any sort of sense you know yeah, um, so we've talked about the, the piano writing in particular, but um, I, I would be interested to see how it was writing for your own instrument. Um, what were the kind of challenges that you had with that? Or, you know, um, was it an easier sort of process? Well, the, the, the easy process was that I knew the instrument incredibly well. So I actually studied saxophone as an undergraduate at the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland before I, I went on to 
the even darker side of composition. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so I, obviously I've, I've played a lot of the standard repertoire and know the instrument and also, you know, grew up alongside Lewis as well, which was a real joy because I've then been able to, or I've, I've known his playing from the point at which he, I think he, I've even known him since he was at juniors and then progressed onto the, the senior academy and then saw him all the way through his undergraduate course. So I knew Lewis is playing incredibly well, which was even better because I know and could then play to his strengths uh, when I'm writing for him as a composer. I suppose the difficulties in that is that I've then got the baggage of all the standard repertoire that I know as a player, um, and the sort of like the types of saxophone writing that I wanted to try and avoid. And I suppose I should probably say that I had actually intentionally avoided writing anything for sax and piano, probably because I, I know the saxophone repertoire so well. And it, but it's not in, it's not in that sort of composery sense of. I don't want to write a string quartet because there's too much historic baggage. I think it was just that I'd kind of, I'd had enough of hearing saxophone and piano (laughs) (laughs) more than anything else, but actually then getting to that point where I was then ready to to tackle it as a, um, as a um, idiomatic duo in that sense, I felt more ready for it. And also I think I had to just wait a, a little bit in terms of my own development as a composer before I felt ready to tackle something like that. It's quite interesting because I suppose saxophone and classical music, the saxophone's a relatively young instrument, isn't it? Am I right in saying that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's only been a, a, around for sort of like the last couple of hundred years. So the, the, the repertoire is, is um, fairly limited compared to, you know, your, your violins and bassoons and oboes and things like that. But uh, the, the repertoire has come a long, long way in, in recent years in particular, which I think is fantastic. And there's great resources out there that's uh, got some great repertoire and great composers who are writing great music for the saxophone as well. But yeah, it's, it's a fairly, fairly new instrument. So it'd be great to hear even more of your music now. And I'm really excited to talk about the, the next piece we've got here, which is Heroin Chic for Big Band. Um, I was actually reminiscing because I was at the premiere of this, which I think was back in 2012. And I think I would, I'd only been at uni a couple of months and it was one of the first concerts I went to at RCS. So I was feeling a bit um, nostalgic when I was listening to it the other night. But this is a fairly unusual ensemble for a, a classical composer. I just wondered, did you choose this ensemble specifically for the topic you were exploring or was there something about the ensemble that then inspired the concept? Yeah, well, as, as I had mentioned briefly before, the concept for me always comes before uh, the music. So that was very much the case in this piece. And, and, and this is actually my first foray, is it foray, is that the right word? I'm not really sure, into so. <laughs> composition. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was really my first foray into composing in that sense. So for me, the way that I think about this piece is that it really is my, um, if, if you like, opus one for me being a, saxophonist to then sort of putting half a foot or, or or at least one whole foot into the composition department because I think at that time I was still studying as a second study composer when I wrote the piece and so the concept for this piece was really me railing against the idea of what heroin chic is as the fashion image which is that really waif-like figure that you would see and in, in the, the sort of characters that would typify this would be like Kate Moss back in the sort of like early 2000s and stuff and it, I suppose it was me just thinking about the, the sort of lifestyle that then accompanies that and, the, and and asking the question whether or not that should be put forward to young people who are easily influenced um, as some sort of like lifestyle choice just because purely based on image or, or whatever you know 
it was because of that fact that it was quite a sort of it was quite a poppy sound world that I had in my head because it was such a mainstream topic, especially at that time. There was quite a lot of people discussing that topic on blogs and things. And so what I wanted to do was to use the sound of the big band to represent the sort of um, quote unquote pop culture in that sort of sense but also the idea that we've got riffs and refrains that keep coming back again and again which represent the addictive aspect of not only heroin but also the addictive aspect of looking good and feeling good but also that sort of like um harrowing sort of background behind a lot of the stories that, that you heard at the time and um, particularly with regards to that that sort of image and so the big band became the the ensemble that I felt was the most appropriate to use in that context.
that's such a cool piece. Yeah, I, <laughs> I love it. It's the, it's, it's so probably good. one of the few contemporary classical pieces of music that I would I would have to describe as a banger to somebody. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know? I still get some people who have heard the piece. It's, it's actually been performed a number of times um, at the RCS over the years, and I still get some people who come along to, who or at least who have been to those performances who will come up to me in the corridors if I'm ever back in the building, and they'll start singing that riff to me. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's a it's a really cool piece, and it obviously straddles both the classical and jazz genre. <laughs> genre. genre. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll try again. Um, yeah, it's a really cool piece. We love it, and it's obviously um, straddles both the classical and jazz genre. How did you approach integrating these two worlds? Um, you mentioned. Do you have a, a background in jazz as a performer? No, I don't. So I was trained. Um, as a classical, quote-unquote, classical saxophonist. But I've always had an interest in listening to jazz, but I never really got round to ever playing it myself. And I suppose, as a composer, one of the joys is that you're able to sort of dip in and out of those worlds and, and, and work with musicians who are then able to capture and perform that's those different styles um, so I think that's the, that's the fun aspect for me anyway um, as a writer of music rather than as a performer is that you can then tap into some of the jazz players um, and ask them to perform your music so that you can really capture the genuine stylistic sounds certainly speaking for myself I'm not a jazzer but that's the, the kind of fun aspect of being a composer is that you can kind of be a bit of a stylistic chameleon in that sense and you can sort of pass your music on to the players who are going to play it really authentically and I just love that aspect. Can you tell us about um, your influences musical and also influences non-musical? Um, for me it is, it is always both musical and not non-musical and the non-musical aspect of course manifests itself in the sort of concepts that I'm interested in you know so it's it's extra musical objects I guess like books for example um with regards to afterlife or states of mind in some of the more recent pieces that I've been writing you know you could you could say that that sort of plays into um circadian refrains in that sort of sense but you know, even in the past, I've been influenced by things like conspiracy theories and I've written pieces about seances and, you know, physical objects like broken plates, um, which I've written a solo flute piece for Catherine Bryan. Which um, is then going to be turned into a, a flute concerto for the RSNO, which I'm, I'm really looking forward to. And then just, you know, other styles of music, like we've mentioned, like jazz and sort of popular culture, but paintings as well. And there's a couple of pieces, one in particular that I wrote about um, Andre Serrano's work, which was the extra musical influence for, or impetus for writing that piece. But my main sort of musical influences, if you, if you want to get onto that sort of topic, I've always got my, and it sounds a bit cheesy, but I've always got my five Bs, Beethoven, Burt Whistle, David Bowie, Kate Bush and Bach. <laughs> that that really that that typifies my playlist to be honest 
Um, it's, it's those sort of musical characters I find really interesting because they, for me they cover a wide range of, of musical interests, whether it's you know from, from Bach, it's this sort of musical pragmatism, but the really um, profound emotions that you can get or you can find in his music. And, and likewise uh, with Beethoven, but perhaps even um, with a, a, a more sort of un, unbridled emotional context in that sort of way. I think that's that's what I really admire about Beethoven's music is that he, he can capture emotion really well and, and, and sort of sell those aspects to the audience, but also invite them in at the same time for them to put their own emotions onto onto his music. And then with, with you know, Bowie and Kate Bush, it's just the, the sheer creativity of both of them as, as individuals and the kind of shape-shifting nature of, of both of them. I think that, that that's always really inspired within me or influenced me to think about what sort of composer I would want to be. And I suppose, not to be rude, but you get composers who are commissioned because the commissioner would know what they're going to get. And I would rather be the composer who's commissioned because they don't know what they're going to get. And I think that, that that means that you're then creatively free to explore whatever you, you want as an artist and whatever then interests and influences you. And of course, uh, you know, Burt Whistle as well um, has influenced me just for the sheer the sheer scope of his music and what it is that he's aiming to achieve through pieces. And like we were talking about earlier, the way that he sort of plays around with time, but within even some of his shorter pieces, just how profound he can make his musical statements I really, really admire just how much he can say in a short period of time, as well as, as how, how much he can say in a much longer period of time. It's so great to hear you've got such a, a broad range of influences. Um, but to finish up, we're going to hear your piece, Dehumanised Shock Absorbers. Before we listen, could you tell us a little bit about the piece? So the piece is inspired by the breaking of technology. Um, what I've, I've always been interested in is trying to capture um, technology in a physical form and how technology acts in a physical form, particularly when it's malfunctioning. And so that was really the concept of this piece, is how do physical living, breathing players represent a piece of technology which is failing. So shock absorbers are in the old... Um, I, I used to listen to when I was a, a young student before um, iPods and things like that, and it would constantly skip and, and, and sort of break in that sort of way. And so I was trying to capture that sort of sensation in music. Thank you. 